2: In the decade before the Civil War, Congress was the scene of bitter sectional conflict, not just with words but with pistols and canes. Yet when southern states actually seceded and northern states prepared for war in 1860 and 61, no one was more surprised or more heartbroken than the politicians in Washington whose inflammatory rhetoric concealed the respect and friendship they had for one another across sectional lines. How did the disconnect between their words and behavior contribute to the outbreak of a disastrous war? We'll find out tonight from Professor Rachel Sheldon, author of Washington Brotherhood, Politics, Social Life, and the Coming of the Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app. If you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, the Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich g at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. It is a Beautiful spring, late spring evening in June of 2014, uh, here in the Brewster Building on the third floor where the History Department office sits on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the University of North Carolina system, but not the only part, and certainly not the part for which I'm speaking tonight. I speak only for myself, I guess likewise will do the same, uh, not representing any part of the system, although I am now more connected to the system than ever before, because in answer to the long-running question that listeners have been clamoring to find out the answer to, well, actually, no one has asked, but if they did, they would want to know, where is Maria, my younger daughter, going to school next year? and the decision has come down for university of north carolina at chapel hill the flagship of our state system uh, the school to which we here in the pirate nation uh, which we regard as the uh, elite and arrogant upper crust that has no regard for anything east of i-95 and thus we delight when the pirates beat the tar heels in football as we did last year This year, when the Tar Heels come to Greenville, my daughter will be coming with them, I'm sure, wearing the powder blue that is their color, and I'll get to talk trash with her as the the two teams play, but it's nice having her relatively close to home, a few hours away, and taking advantage of the uh, ever-dwindling but still-present taxpayer support for the uh, school system that means uh, tuition for in-state students is much more reasonable than uh, than it is elsewhere. So all signs were good, and uh, Maria just got back from orientation yesterday. Looks like fun. I'm now motivated to go and do some research at the uh, uh, the, the Southern Life uh, Institute or other places in Chapel Hill just so I can hang around and find out what Maria is up to. But I'll keep you up to date on that as. Uh, I will on our shows coming up on Civil War Talk Radio next week, June 11th. We'll be joined by Marvin Nicholson. He is the Sergeant Major of the reincarnated, reenacted Battery B, Second Light Artillery, United States Colored Troops. And will share with us experiences as a reenactor and the history of Battery B uh, of the USCT Following that, June 18th, Bjorn Skaptesen of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago will be with us. Uh, Bjorn runs the uh, online book signings uh, that you can watch, the video book signings from the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, which are in some ways comparable to Civil War talk radio and I'm interested in finding out uh, his trade secrets and see if I can steal some guests from him for next season. Uh, And that will be our last show of the season. Uh, You can find out when we restart at the end of August or early September by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org That's the Civil War Talk Radio Companion website run by Mark Gaffney. And it tells you who's been on the show, who's going to be on the show. It has links, uh, donation buttons for PayPal. You can click on that and Send money with uh, no benefit for you involved, no tax deductibility, no, not even a clear conscience when you could be donating to a more worthy cause. All it does is allow me to buy more books for the show, and if I've got enough books to buy, craft bourbon or something to go with the reading of the books. Uh, you can also spend your money by buying the books you hear about on the show tonight's book, last week's book, and all the books. Uh, Any book you buy by going through the website's link and getting to Amazon that way will add a little bit of income to the website and help Mark keep the uh, server fees paid up and the website current. So if you're looking for a copy of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, which is now back in print and paperback from UNC Press, you can get that there. Tonight's book is another UNC Press book. And uh, I should mention for those who have not heard my voice enough and are thinking, how can I be reading Jerry's stuff when I'm not listening to him? Uh, There's a new book from Louisiana State University Press, Gateway to the Confederacy. It's edited by uh, Evan Jones and Wiley Sword and has essays by uh, a number of folks who've been on the show, David Powell, Russell Bonds, Craig Simons, uh, Caroline Janey, who is one of the editors of tonight's book series uh, and an essay that I put in there on the Army of the Ohio. So you can, uh, there's no royalties involved in essay collections just to let you know I'm not not profiting from this. Uh, the, for profit, just send me money straight up, that'll work. Uh, but this will support the website if you go through Amazon. So all those things can be done from the website. Let's leave the website in the 21st century behind and retreat for the rest of our hour into the 19th, where no academic administrators dare to follow. Uh, We can just talk history with our guest. Uh, She is Rachel A. Sheldon. Uh, Her dust jacket uh, says she is assistant professor of history at Georgia College and State University. Uh, Professor Sheldon, are you there?
3: I am. Thank you so much for having me
2: welcome to the show. And uh, we were emailing back and forth this week. You mentioned something about uh, Oklahoma. Is this a, a new new gig for you?
3: It is, yes. I'm uh, moving on from Georgia College, and I will be starting as an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma in August.
2: Well, congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you.
3: Thank you very uh, much.
2: Knowing the Market for historians uh, as as all of us in the profession do. how did this come about?
3: Well, um, you know, I've been long interested in working at a research one university, and um, the University of Oklahoma has just a fantastic history department, and uh, so it worked out with the long job market season, and uh, I'm very excited to be joining them, although it is a little bit bittersweet to be leaving. The folks at Georgia College, I've really enjoyed my time with
2: them. Well, that that's good news. It's always always good news to hear of a colleague finding a place where they're uh, looking forward to the, the right kind of institutional fit. Um, long-time listeners to this show are, are utterly sick and tired of hearing the administrative woes here at East Carolina University. Um, But we're looking forward to new times. We have a new arts and sciences dean and a new provost starting in the fall, and we're hoping they will regenerate our interest in becoming a research to university, which we almost were 10 years ago, and suddenly we decided we'd become a big community college instead. And I say we meaning somebody upstairs without telling the rest of us. So uh, we're we're hoping to get back on the track and and, uh, be rewarded for publishing. But... uh,
3: Well, I I wish you great luck in that. You know, the one um, wonderful thing about Oklahoma and that made me want to go there in the first place is that they still value teaching very much in addition to Mm -hmm. the research. And so uh, I think, you know, the best schools these days are doing both, even when they're, you know, quote, unquote, research one. And so I expect that'll probably be uh, a good thing going forward for most schools, including yours.
2: Well, I I couldn't agree more that the teaching and research go together, and and when a research one goes into the stratosphere and and neglects its undergrads, or when a school like a research-intensive school like ours decides it's it's just a big high school, uh, that's the other direction, so... Uh, well, we haven't gone that far yet. We're still... <laughs>
0: still
2: right. But let's talk about these Washington politicians. Uh, I thought this was a fascinating book and really uh, enjoyed reading it. Let me start with something that I observed last week, uh, talking with Randy Fuller, uh, who wrote a book about uh, from Battlefields Rising about the uh, New England literati during the war, and what struck me, as we discussed last week, was how all these people knew each other, and they're all related to one another. And uh, you know, Robert Gould Shaw of the 54th Massachusetts knows uh, the brother of Emerson, uh, and, and everybody's connected in this small America. And your book oh. brought that home even more. All these guys know each other uh, before the Civil War. Everybody who's everybody in the Civil War knows everybody else personally.
3: Is that Call an exaggeration? The elite, anyway, yes. Yes, absolutely.
2: Yes. So, how, how does that affect. I guess let's go back to the Wilmot Proviso when this all starts in the 1840s. Um, you, you make the argument from the very start that all the arguments in Washington are not seen as nearly as big in Washington because these guys are all friends.
3: That's right. I I think there's um, the the best way to look at it is to think about it as sort of two obligations on behalf of the politicians in Washington. First, Mm -hmm. you have the obligation to your constituents and to speak to your constituents' ideas about what's going on in the country uh, and also to help them get what they want, like paved roads. Uh, But you also have an obligation to try to make policy, or at least that is what exists in the minds of these politicians who come to Washington. We want to make policy. Uh, And so those two things, in the 1850s in particular, start to become less and less related. Uh, When you have people who are upset about what's going on on the ground in, say, places like Kansas, uh, you want to speak to your constituents' frustrations about those issues in a way that's going to appeal to their sensibilities. But maybe that's not going to affect so much what you do behind the scenes to try to do something about what's going on there. Uh, and in those cases, you're really working with people who come from different backgrounds but who also have a vested interest in making policy. And so you connect with them in a variety of levels. And, you know, just like today when you meet a bunch of new people in college or in your job or anywhere else, you find ways to connect with them And you're even forced to connect with them uh, when you spend so much time together. And so in Washington, if you come in uh, as a lawyer, for example, you can connect very well with other lawyers. Or if you come in as somebody who is a Freemason, you can connect very well with other Freemasons. And there are a variety of other examples of this. Washington itself being a place uh, that facilitates this because it's small uh, and it's mostly people from Congress hanging out together, spending time together uh, in their free moments. So in, as a result of that, I think you, you said it very well at the very beginning of the show, uh, these men are doing two things at once. They are sort of facilitating more anger throughout the country by making these speeches that are very fiery on the floor of the House and the Senate, but then also not really being invested in those speeches from the perspective of policymaking uh, when they're trying to do something almost the exact opposite of what they're saying on the
2: floor of the house so you've got this situation where the representatives the people's representatives in and and this isn't explicit in the book but but tell me if I'm on the right track. The founding fathers conceive of the republic as being governed by the best uh of of the elite uh sure. Leadership, and that the common citizen won't know what the issues are in Washington, won't uh, even care necessarily, and thus uh, we just elect electors to the Electoral College. They'll actually pick the president. Um, The state legislatures will pick the senators. So it's an expectation when they get there, they won't be troubled by the common passions. They can just have these rational policy talks among themselves. Right, yeah. So... Uh, I've looked at the clock and I see we're already at our first break. Let me leave you with this thought and and ask you to address it when we come back. Um, So the idea is we start with with Washington being a place where these elite men have so much in common and they're not to be palsied by the will of their constituents, as John Quincy Adams famously said. But Something changes in the 1840s and 50s where their constituents get all fired up and believe everything they hear from Washington. So my question is, what changed from between the vision of 1800 and the founding fathers in 1840 to 1850? And we'll stop with that long-winded question. Uh, come right back in just a minute. Uh, talking today with Rachel A. Sheldon. She is the author of Washington Brotherhood, Politics, Social Life, and the Coming of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Rachel A. Sheldon, author of Washington Brotherhood. Excuse me. There we go. Politics, Social Life, and the Coming of the Civil War. We left off the end of the first segment with a question. How was it that the system whereby Washington politicians could make policy and be friends, regardless of their political views, uh, works reasonably well for 40 50 years but in the 1850s something changes the, they continue to be friends but their constituents at home uh, go crazy and secede and start fighting what what, what, what happened
3: <laughs> well I you know I think that's a pretty complex question because there are um, a lot of factors that influence the ways in which the constituents relate to the politicians. Um, And I think historians have done a really good job in the past 100 years, really, in explaining some of these major changes, uh, the role of territorial expansion and um, the role of anti-slavery activists, in particular, in working with the issue of territorial expansion and promoting the problems with territorial expansion and slavery expansion into the West. In the South, particularly in the Deep South, the breakdown of the second-party system uh, and the concern about politicians, generally, and this is true even all the way back to the founding, right, the concerns about um, are politicians really serving our interests? Is Is party politics really a good thing? Uh, And what does it mean for the future of our nation? And I think all of those things, and a variety of others, uh, really influence the way that constituents are reacting. What I think really changes in Washington is just the increasing numbers of politicians there. Uh, There are so many now that they are fighting all the time to try to make a name for themselves uh, for their constituents, I read all these great letters of politicians, places like Iowa, who are writing to their uh, families and saying, I can't get to the floor of Congress to make an impact so that my constituents will reelect me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write out my speech and hand it to the newspapermen and tell them to put it in the Congressional Globe, the uh, major volume of uh, speeches, from the House of Representatives, and hopefully I can have an impact that way. Uh, So there are more and more of these politicians who are trying to have an influence and trying to speak up in Congress, uh, and at the same time, trying to be part of this uh, elite group, as you say, of men who are making policy, Uh, and I think, so I think there are some um, continuities between the founding period all the way up through this period and beyond, Uh, but What's happening outside of Washington is really what's making an impact. The people's experiences with slavery and anti-slavery, with issues involving Catholicism and the breakdown of the Second Party system, I think, in particular.
2: When you mentioned the idea of having speeches published that are not actually delivered on the floor, that means they can say things in those speeches as partisan as they want, as sectional as they want, Without risk of offending their colleagues, because exactly. they're not saying it right to them,
3: in it, did a lot that of put me Yeah, go ahead. Anyway, <laughs> 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 uh, that's, that's sort of uh, one of the more um, amusing but also sort of shocking aspects of the research that I did on this book is just how little these politicians are listening to each other on a day to day basis. In fact, this is true all the way up to today. You know, we know this from C-SPAN, that often Mm -hmm. there's nobody in the House of Representatives when people are making speeches. But this is true in the 1840s and 50s and before this and just after, uh, where people just did not really care about what was going on on the floor unless it was a very important speech given by somebody as prominent as Henry Clay. Uh, And only if Clay was giving a speech on something important. So as a result of that there's just there's very little interest in what's going to the constituents uh, unless there's some reaction from the constituents, and then that creates uh, more of an interest on behalf of the politicians.
2: So if the speeches that appear in the Congressional Globe are not really being listened to or sometimes even spoken on the floor, and if, if the representatives in the room are not paying attention, then real politics is not happening in the form of formal debate. It's happening somewhere else. And, and you suggest it's happening all over Washington.
3: Exactly. I, I think one of the things that we have a tendency to do with political history is to think about it as happening in strictly political spaces, uh, on the floor of the House, in the White House, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, what I try to show in the book is that, in fact, Political discussion happens all over Washington in places that we think of as more social, uh, at parties and balls and at dinners, uh, just people chatting in each other's rooms or playing cards uh, and having a discussion over a card game, or lobbyists supplying important politicians with drinks and persuading them of their opinions uh, at a bar, or something along those lines. So all of those are places where politicking is really happening, and as a result of that, when we get to bills uh, and when we get to voting, a lot of that has much more to do with what's happening behind the scenes outside of the traditional political spaces.
2: Now, when these politicians are meeting then and, and talking politics, they're also they're talking across party lines and across sectional lines, and that also struck me as as really an, an interesting fact about this period. Um, being a Lincoln person, I, I was peculiarly drawn to the, the story of the young Indians. Yes. Uh, tell us about the young Indians.
3: Well, I share, I share your interest in Lincoln. I'm, um, I got interested in this period, actually, um, first because of Lincoln. And I knew that Lincoln was just a one-term congressman. Uh, he came to Washington in 1848, uh, and he wanted to uh, get involved really quickly. Uh, and so he tried to make some important speeches on the floor of the House. Uh, to really make a name for himself, and he did not make a name for himself. Um, As we just talked about, many people did not actually listen to what was going on on the floor of the House, Uh, and so as a result of that, he was sort of ignored, uh, and he quickly figured out that an important way to get involved in Washington society to be able to contribute... Politically, was to join one of the many clubs or organizations in the city and to work with others to achieve the goals that he wanted. Uh, and so in this case, he joined something called the Young Indian Club, which was a group of politicians who were Whigs, which Abraham Lincoln was in this period. Uh, and he uh, was quite friendly with these men. Some came from... North, Lincoln, uh, and a fellow named Truman Smith, Uh, and then several came from the South, including future Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens uh, and Robert Toombs, also from Georgia, and so he became quite friendly with these men. They discussed major issues of the day, uh, and most importantly, they tried to promote uh, Zachary Taylor as the Whig presidential nominee for the 1848 presidential election. Uh, And so this became his way of making his mark uh, of really actually having influence in Washington, and he was considered to have much more influence later in his uh, term as a congressman rather than earlier when he's giving his famous uh, spot resolutions that we all think of when we think of Abraham Lincoln as a Whig in Congress. And so part of my point here is to show that Lincoln learned how to fit into this Washington society, but also was particularly affected by his relationship with Southerners, uh, Alexander Stevens being the most important in that case.
2: And this comes back then in, in 1865, uh, as you note, near the end, when, the, when Jefferson Davis sends a delegation to, uh, uh, to talk about the end of the war, and Lincoln goes to meet them, and, and Stevens is one of them, and they're That's able right. to open their conversation. Uh,
3: and, um, you know, I think, I think there are two more moments, actually, in the book. One, uh, in the secession crisis itself, mm-hmm. where I think Lincoln really um, misjudged how serious the South was, I think, because of his experience in Washington, because he was so particularly uh, familiar with Southerners who were willing to compromise with him like Stevens in 1848. Uh, And so I think he struggled a little bit to understand how serious the threat of secession was. Uh, But it also, as you mentioned, comes back at the Hampton Roads Peace Conference in 1865, uh, where he meets with three Southerners, uh, along with William Stewart, famously captured completely incorrectly in the movie Lincoln. I'm a, I'm a fan of that movie, but that particular mm-hmm. scene is not, not very accurate, uh, no. <laughs> where he has a conversation with these men about possibly ending the war, um, and part of the point in showing that in this being the epilogue of my book, is to say, look, as you mentioned earlier uh, in the program, these men were quite friendly, not just before the war, but during and after. Uh, And these relationships stayed with them well beyond the secession crisis. William Seward had been quite friendly with Jefferson Davis, actually, before the war, uh, and Lincoln as I mentioned, had been friendly with Alexander Stevenson, and so the conversation at Hampton Roads was actually quite pleasant, uh, but still indicative of the fact that events were controlling them more than they were controlling events at Hampton Roads. Uh, they were not going to end the war there. There was not going to be a settlement that was going to either allow the South to leave, which is an initially what the Southerners wanted to do, uh, or that was going to convince them to surrender at that moment, which, of course, is what Lincoln wanted. So as a result, uh, it, it was really the impact of what was going on outside of the Washington politicians that had the real meaning for what was going to happen going forward.
2: So there's that, that disconnect between what's happening in Washington and what's happening in the rest of the country, where... Uh, as you point out, it leads to Lincoln misjudging the the strength of Southern Unionism because the Southerners he knew in Congress were fundamentally Unionists, even if they had their views. Exactly. Uh, and and similarly, uh, I'm sure, sure Southern politicians in Washington couldn't imagine Northerners actually taking up arms. Uh, both sides misjudged the depth of each other's commitment, uh, and it's partly because they're so close. What one image that struck me reading this were the famous uh, Forbes illustration of the soldiers during the war uh, Confederate Union soldiers uh, sitting on a blanket uh, trading tobacco for coffee yeah. and they don't bear each other any personal animus their their job is to fight but when the shooting is not taking place they're happy to uh, engage on a personal level and uh, is there anything is there anything to that? Is that well, almost these these political soldiers are, are personal friends, but well, political I, I do think there warriors? is some of
3: that in the war. Um, I think sometimes that can be overstated because in, mm-hmm. you know there is quite a bit of just pure anger that exists on both sides. I think much of the literature on uh, common soldiers has demonstrated that, but I do think that there are these moments. There are these moments where there's a shared understanding, and certainly for people who knew each other. I, and I think that's something that exists particularly in the elite levels. There are stories of politicians who ran into each other <laughs> during the war uh, who claim that they were nice to each other. We don't have a lot of real evidence about how they actually behaved. But later on, they say, oh, yes, we, we were very nice to each other on the battlefield because we had been old friends. And certainly after the war, um, when many of the politicians uh, from the South are in prison, uh, Northerners who knew them back before the war tend to be the first people to stand up and say, we should get these guys out of prison. This is not acceptable. Even people that really, really disliked each other in terms of their politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the serious anti-slavery guys and the serious pro-slavery guys seem to... Find a way to have common ground after the war, which might might be an interesting uh, further explana- exploration <laughs> going forward. What happens to these politicians?
2: It would be worth worth tracing. So these friendships uh, are, are both you know across the the sectional line, and there are also these connections across party lines. Now the eighteen fifties is a decade when the distinction between whigs and democrats collapses and the new party lines are drawn between northern republicans and uh pretty much everyone else the, the, the south becomes a one party area uh, but you do you show that there's there are these connections between uh uh between whigs and democrats uh before the war as well as between northerners and southerners Let's take another short break. Uh, but let me once again set up a, a a question to think about during that time. For all the the discussion of of you know, amity among uh, politicians, the obvious question has to be: Well, what about you know Charles Sumner uh, and, mm. and Preston Brooks? Uh, Or what about uh, uh, Foote and and Benton almost getting into a duel on the floor? Surely there are examples of violence or near violence uh, among politicians. They they can't all be friends. So let's take a short break, come back and and talk about, uh, and let me ask you how, how that fits into your argument here. We're talking tonight with Rachel A. Sheldon, author of Washington Brotherhood, Politics, Social Life, and the Coming of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: talking with Rachel Sheldon, author of Washington Brotherhood, Politics, Social Life, and the Coming of the Civil War, Uh, a fascinating book that shows how the politicians in Washington could give fiery anti-slavery speeches or anti-abolition speeches one day uh, or during the day and then enjoy a drink or dinner or a social event together or even live together uh, in the same boarding house But, uh, Rachel, there are obvious examples where the politicians do come to blows, uh, the caning of Charles Sumner being the most famous one. Yeah. Is that an anomaly? You you argue that it it didn't really make that big a splash in Washington the way it did around the rest of the country.
3: That's right. Uh, I think one of the things that's important uh, to understand in the context of this is what a violent place the United States was in this period. There was a lot of violence not just in Washington, but in cities across the country and, of course, on the frontier, um, people engaged in violent behavior on a much more regular basis. Uh, so if we start with that, and then mm-hmm. we think about the ways in which people engaged in violence in Washington in that context, the caning of Charles Sumner is a good example of a Southerner beating up on a Northerner, uh, but it's also part of a broader trend in Washington of violence that exists not just between Northerners and Southerners, but between Northerners and Northerners, and between Southerners and Southerners, uh, that exists on the streets of Washington, but also exists in the Capitol building before. Uh, So there's that to begin with. There's much more of an understanding of the politicians in this period that violence is going to be a regular part of their experience. But this is also a good example of how things in Washington appeared to the politicians uh, quite differently from how they appeared to the people outside of Washington. So the caning of Charles Sumner exists in this context uh, where Sumner says something that people say, oh, that's not very nice. Uh, Brooks, who beats him up on the floor of the Senate, uh, is someone who's actually fairly well-liked in Washington before this. Uh, Most of the politicians think that what he does is not very nice. Uh, But, again, it's part of the standard experience of living in Washington that these people are going to see. And so following the caning of Charles Sumner, uh, there is a move to get rid of Brooks. Uh, There are some actions taken by the city to try to prosecute him for his actions. Uh, But for the most part, it blows over after a couple of days. Uh, And it does not cause, most importantly, it does not cause a split between Northerners and Southerners that lasts in any way. Uh, Within three or four days of the caning, these men are going back to dinner with one another. They are seeing each other at bar rooms. They're having conversations uh, at church. It's just not something that sticks with them. But as it's published in the newspapers... Uh, and as Northerners and Southerners see it around the country, it becomes a very big deal as part of a broader story about what's going on in the country. So Northerners, who are already very concerned about the what most Republicans call the slave power, see this as an example of the slave power wielding its uh, violent means against the Northern politicians. Whereas in Washington, in, It means very little, uh, aside from the fact that Sumner is going to be gone for a while from the Senate, uh, and Brooks, who is someone who's very well-liked, is also going to be gone from the House of Representatives. Uh, So as a result of that, if we think about it in a broader context, we can understand that it's not really the event that it looks like in Washington, That doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact in the rest of the country. It absolutely does. Uh, It's just not the same impact.
2: So there's, uh, you you pointed out that this is part of a violent culture. uh, And I'm guessing many listeners to this show will be familiar with uh, Dan Sickles. Uh, They will all be familiar with Dan Sickles as the commander of Third Corps at Gettysburg. Uh, But he's an example of this.
3: That's exactly right. Dan Sickles is, I think everyone is amused by Dan Sickles. He was quite the character. um, And he was quite the character in 1858 when he found out that his wife was having an affair. with a man in Washington and arranged to catch him in the act of trying to pursue his wife uh, to catch this man, Philip Barton Key, and uh, chased him out into uh, Lafayette Square, which is right in front of the White House, and shot him uh, point blank in the middle of Lafayette Square and uh, then turned himself in and proceeded to be acquitted uh, for temporary insanity, first case, of this in American history. Uh, so he had been a character for quite some time, but yeah, he had en- engaged in this and so had several other politicians uh, in the years preceding this. Uh, being involved with guns and knives was not something that they would have been unfamiliar with
2: in this period. So, so this is just what they do uh, or just, just what happens there. And thus, um uh, the idea of of being friends across party lines or across uh, sectional lines, uh, it, as I was reading the book, I had it made me think of, of contemporary settings yeah. uh, where we don't see this publicly in the same way. Uh, James Carville and Mary Madeline, for example, are are sort of a, a novelty act, yeah. uh, too too virulent partisan. Commentators from opposite sides who have a personal uh, relationship, and was this in your mind as you came to this topic or as you worked on it that that there's a, a commentary here on contemporary politics? If if you, and if so, what is that commentary?
3: That's a good question. You know, I um, I lived in Washington for several years before I started working on this project, and it certainly was in my mind. Uh, that this is something that you see less and less of. I'm, I'm frequently sent uh, newspaper articles about how there's been this breakdown in Washington. I don't really have um, a point about contemporary politics because I think the circumstances are so different. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're we're not fighting about slavery in the 21st century in the way that we were fighting about it in the 1840s and 50s. In some ways, the stakes are much lower, Uh, the Civil War being the most important change uh, that goes to what I'm talking about in terms of differences in the 21st century. Um, But yes, it does tell us something about how, in particular, I think our media has changed the way that we're able to have these kinds of relationships. Good or bad. Uh, I don't want to make a statement about whether or not it's a good thing that these mm-hmm. politicians spend so much time talking to each other behind closed doors. Uh, but without the intense media scrutiny, there would probably be much more possibility for it. Uh, the fact that politicians cannot go to dinner with one another without a news broadcast explaining what's going on uh, probably makes a big difference. Uh, and of course, the travel. These politicians spent significant portions of time in Washington together. Uh, and the fact that most politicians these days in Washington go home for four or five days of the week and spend only a couple of days of the week in Washington, I think definitely has an impact. It's hard to know exactly what, would, what it would look like without that travel or without uh, those reporters who have an eye for what's going on behind closed doors, but certainly it would look different.
2: I think one of the best, the features of the best history is it does make you think about contemporary issues, not in a simple one-to-one analogy, and this book certainly doesn't present that, but but it does present these almost uh, it's really interesting uh, paradoxes. Maybe if politicians could be more uh, friendly with one another and represent their constituents' partisan views less accurately, mm. uh, we could have less conflict. Then again, you're describing a decade in which that's exactly what they do, but the outcome is not less conflict. It's the the worst war, war in American history.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, so, I, 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 growing up, my uh, my dad's. Uh, Close college friend got elected to Congress, and I sort of grew up at campaign headquarters, and uh, thought everybody knew a congressman well uh, when I was a kid. Turns out they don't. Uh, but sometimes he would talk to my dad about how there were the other side, the guys on the other side of the aisle, were perfectly good guys. This is in the nineteen sixties yeah. uh, and seventies, and they they could be friends. And my dad was very partisan. You know, would say how how can you be friends with them? They're all wrong. And you'd say, "Well, you know Jerry, they just believe something different, but as as people, we all get along, and that does seem to be gone today, uh, but it was there in the eighteen fifties, yet it didn't save the country in the eighteen fifties so your your book really is a stimulating one to raise all these issues um,
3: yeah i I, tr- I tried not to do something that we've been doing for years and years and in coming of the Civil War history, which is try to explain the coming of the Civil War uh, from that perspective. I I don't think that the politicians specifically caused the Civil War or tried to cause the Civil War. Certainly they contributed in what they said. Uh, but they, they lived in their own little bubble. They lived mm-hmm. sort of inside the Beltway before there was a Beltway. And that really changed the way they understood what was going on in the Civil War. And I think it will have... Um, serious implications for them going forward. Jefferson Davis, for example, uh, has a real uh, sort of crisis in that he'd spent so much of his life in politics and believed that politics were the way to fix the ills of the nation, uh, and then it fails. And he then becomes the president of the Confederacy. How does he handle those things? How does he see uh, his experiences as a politician and the failure of politics going forward? I think um, Bill Cooper's book on Jefferson Davis speaks very well to this problem of how does someone who spent his life in politics and is continuing in politics in a new circumstance come to terms with that failure? So certainly it affects the way they behave in the Civil War. It certainly affects Lincoln during the secession crisis uh, and and several of the other prominent politicians during that period. But I don't know that it actually tells us much about why the Civil War came uh, when it did. And, and historians have been talking about that for so long. We know that it has to do with slavery. We know that it has to do with some contingencies uh, at the time of the secession mm-hmm. crisis. So I wanted to do something slightly different
2: well it it certain your book certainly does, and the 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 sadness the the emotional impact on these leaders is quite striking when you get to the chapter on secession yeah this is not what they bargained for they uh they thought you know the hotheads would have a drink and go out and come back, and politics would continue as usual and when the fire that these guys have stoked back home with their speeches and rhetoric uh, starts to consume them. They are the last ones uh, to get aboard. I mean, they're they're horrified by it.
3: Yeah, in many cases, I think they just they had no idea that it was coming. Uh, they didn't they didn't really realize how serious their constituents were. And again, Jefferson Davis being the best example of this and how teary he is and how miserable he is uh, that this is coming to an end and he's crying following his. Farewell speech to the Senate, uh, and then he turns around and becomes the president of the Confederacy. So something changes fairly quickly in him, but he he clearly keeps some of his important uh, lessons from being a politician, whether he wants to or not.
2: And, and again, although you say it was not your intended, it, it causes the reader to think. You know, what if uh, today's partisanship, what if one side or the other succeeded and the other side oh. disappeared? Uh, or, or if there was some horrible conflict, uh, people would say, well, we didn't mean it. We were just trying to get ratings for our show. We, right. we didn't mean to cause a civil war. We didn't mean to cause America to fall. Uh, we didn't really mean all, you know, 40, 50 percent of the nation who disagrees with us are, are evil. Uh, yet there it is. If uh, you keep saying it every night, you run that risk. And, uh, yeah, I, yeah, so, I so think it's, it's, you can
3: see a lot of parallels, particularly in the way that um, newspapers and sort of the modern media work to promote the words of the politicians and make them <laughs> as serious as they are. But whether that is a good thing or a bad thing, I'm not qualified
2: to say. Well, in the last minute, a uh, quick question. Do you have another project uh, in the hopper?
3: I do. I'm um, starting to work on a new project on judicial ethics in the 19th century. I I got very interested in the role of the Supreme Court during uh, the secession crisis and, and before, particularly the Dred Scott decision has always been of interest to me. Uh, and so I'm interested in understanding how it is that Supreme Court justices behaved Uh, and why they behaved the way they did in the 19th century in ways that are often a little bit peculiar to our eyes. Uh, A good example of this, to use uh, a moment from the book, is that during the secession crisis, William Henry Seward, who is frantically trying to make a compromise, is also trying a case in front of the Supreme Court. (laughs) Not something you hear much about. Uh, but no. it's odd that he would be doing that in sixty. Really 60. Uh, and so I wanted to get a better sense of how the Supreme Court operates in this period uh, and going all the way up into the late 19th century thinking of ending with the civil rights cases, uh, particularly on the issues of slavery and race that really come up in this period. What that tells us about why they decided cases the way that they did. So that's, right. that's sort of my next uh, big project.
2: Well, we will look forward to seeing that come out. Uh, this book, Washington Brotherhood, Politics, Social Life, and the Coming of the Civil War, uh, is extremely thought-provoking and, and presents these leaders in a light uh, we haven't seen them before. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. and Listeners, I know you will also enjoy it. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show tonight.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
2: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.